0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Latent Space Podcast. This is Alessio, partner and CTO and residence in residence at Decibel Partners. I'm joined by my co-host, Swix, writer and editor of L-Space Diaries.
1: Hey, and today we have Varun Mohan from Codium slash ExaFunction on. I should introduce you a little bit because I, I like to get the LinkedIn background out of the way. So you did CS at MIT, and then you spent a few years at Neuro, where you were where you ultimately tech lead manager for autonomy. And that's an interesting dive into self-driving car, cars and AI. And then you went straight into exafunction with, uh, with with a few of your coworkers, And I, that's where I met some of them and started started knowing about exafunction And then from out of nowhere, you cloned GitHub Copilot. That's a lot of progress in a very short amount of time. So anyway, welcome.
2: <laughs> that's high praise.
1: <laughs> What's one thing about you that doesn't appear on LinkedIn that is like a big part of what people should know?
2: I actually really like uh, endurance sports. Actually, like I, I've done multiple triathlons. I've actually biked from San Francisco to LA. Yeah, I like things that are like suffering. I like to suffer while I, while I do sports. Yeah.
1: Do you think a lot about like code and tech while you're doing those uh, endurance sports or are you just, your mind is just focused?
2: I think it's maybe a little bit of both. One of the nice things about, I guess, endurance athletics is it's one of the few things you can do where you're not thinking about. You can't really think about much beyond suffering. Like you're climbing up a hill on a bike and you see like uh you see how many more feet you need to climb. Yeah. And at that point you're just struggling. That's your only uh, job. Yeah. Right. The only thing right. you can think of is uh pedaling. One more pedal. So it's actually like a nice a nice way to not think about work. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Maybe for the audience you wanna tell a bit about exafunction, how that came to be and how codium came out of that.
2: Yeah. So a little bit about exafunction. Before working at exafunction, I worked at Neuro, as Sean was just saying, and at Neuro, I sort of managed large scale offline deep learning infrastructure, realized that deep learning infrastructure is really hard to build and really hard to maintain for even the most sophisticated companies and started ExaFunction to basically solve that gap to make it so that it was much easier for companies to, to serve deep learning workloads at scale. One of the key issues that we noticed is GPUs are extremely hard to manage fundamentally because they work differently than CPUs. And once a company has heterogeneous hardware requirements, it's hard to make sure that you get the most out of the hardware. It's hard to make sure you can get great GPU utilization. And ExaFunction was specifically built to make it so that you could get the most out of the hardware, make sure that your GPU is effectively virtualized and decoupled from your workload to make it so that you could be confident that you were running at whatever scale you wanted without burning the bank. Yeah, you gave me this metric about inefficiency, right? Oh, okay, like flop efficiency? Yeah. yeah. So basically, I think it comes down to, for most people, one of the things about CPUs that's really nice is with containers, right? You can end up having a single node and you can place many containers on them and all the containers will slowly start eating the compute. It's not really the same with GPUs. Like, let's say you have a single node for the most part, only have one container using that GPU. And because of that, people heavily underestimate what a single container can sort of do. And the GPU is left like heavily idle. And I guess the common term now with a lot of LLM workloads is like the flop efficiency of these
1: workloads. MFU. Uh, Yeah. Yeah,
2: model flop utilization. The model flop utilization, which is basically like what fraction of the flops or compute on the hardware is actually getting used. And sort of what we did at ExaFunction was not only make it so that the model was always running, we also built compiler technology to make it so that the model was also running more efficiently. And some of these things are with tricks like operator fusion. Like basically you could imagine fusing two operations together so that the time it takes to compute the fused operation is lower than the time it takes for each individual operation. Oh my God. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And you have this technique called dynamic multiplexing, which is basically instead of having a one-to-one relationship, you have one GPU for multiple Clients and I saw one of your customers, they went from 30 clients to just one single GPU and they cut costs by 97%. What were some of those learnings seeing hardware usage inefficiencies and how that then played into what, what you're building now?
2: Yeah, I think it basically showed that there was probably a gap with even very sophisticated teams making good use of the hardware is just not an easy problem. I think that was the main. I, it's not that these teams were like not good at what they were doing. It's just that they were trying to solve a completely separate problem. They had a model that was trained in-house and their goal was to just run it. And it that should be an easy, easy thing to do. But surprisingly, still, it's not that easy. And that problem compounds in complexity with the fact that there are more accelerators now in the cloud. There's like TPUs, inferentia, and there's a lot of decisions uh, that users need to make, even in terms of GPU types. And I guess sort of what we had was we had internal expertise on what the right way to run the workload was. And we were basically able to build infrastructure to make it so that companies could do that without
0: thinking. So most teams are underutilizing their hardware. How should they think about what to own? You know, like, should they own the inference architecture? Like, should they use X deploy to get it to production? How do you think about it? Yeah, so I think one thing
2: that has proven to be true over the last year and a half is companies, for the most part, should not be trying to figure out what the optimal ML architecture is or training architecture is, especially with a lot of these large language models. We have generic models and transformer architecture that are solving a lot of distinct problems. I'll caveat that with most companies because some of our customers, which are autonomous vehicle companies, have extremely strict requirements. Like they need to be able to run a model at very low latency, extremely high precision recall. You know, GPT-3 is great, but the precision recall, you wouldn't trust someone's life with that, right? So Because of that, they need to innovate new kinds of model architectures. But for a vast majority of enterprises, they should probably be using something off the shelf, fine tuning BERT models. If it's vision, they should be fine tuning ResNet or using something like clip, like the less work they can do the better. And I guess that was a key turning point for us, which is like, we start to build more and more infrastructure for the architectures that were like the most popular. And the most popular architecture was the transformer architecture. We had a lot of LLM companies explicitly reach out to us and ask us, wow, our GPT-3 bill is high. Is there a way to serve GPT-3 or some open source model much more cheaply? And that's sort of what we viewed as why we were maybe prepared for
0: when we internally needed to deploy transformer models ourselves. And so the next step was, hey, we have this amazing infrastructure we can build kind of consumer-facing products, so to speak, at, with much better unit economics, much better performance. And that's how Codium kind of came to be. Yeah, I think maybe the the play is not maybe for us to be
2: just we make a lot of consumer products. We want to make products with like clear ROI in the long term in the enterprise. Like we view Codium as maybe one of those things. Uh, and maybe we can, we can talk about Codium maybe after this. We view products like Copilot as being extremely valuable and something that is generating a lot of value to professionals. We saw that there was a gap there where a lot of people probably weren't developing high-intensive LLM applications because of cost, because of the inability to train models the way they want to. And we thought we could do that with our own infrastructure really quickly.
1: I wanna highlight, when you say high-intensive, you mean, Basically, generate models every key, uh, generate inferences on every keystroke. That's
2: right. Yeah. So I would say like there's probably two kinds of LLM applications here. There's an LLM application where you know it rips through a bunch of data and maybe you wait a couple minutes and then you see something. And then there's an application where the quality is not exactly what you want, but it's able to generate enough, sorry, low enough latency that it's still providing a ton of value. And I will say there's like a gap there where the number of products that have hit that Copilot spot is actually not that high. Mm. A lot of them are are kind of like, wait and, you know, just generate a lot of stuff and see what happens. Because one is clearly more compute intensive than the other, basically.
1: Well, Kodium, uh, I don't know if we told the whole story yet. You were going to
2: dive into it. <laughs> yeah, so I guess, I guess the story was, I guess four or five months ago, we sort of decided internally as a team… We were like very early adopters of Copilot. I'm not going to sit here and say Copilot's not a great tool. We love Copilot. It's like a fantastic tool. We all got on the beta. The moment it came out, we're like a fairly small team, but we like, we all got in, we were showing each other completions. We ended up writing like a lot of CUDA and C++ inside the company. And I think there was probably a thought process within us that was like, Hey, the code we write is like very high IQ, you know? So like, there's no way it can help. And one of the things in C++ that's like the most annoying is writing templates writing template programming is maybe one of those things. No one, maybe there's like some people in the C++ standards community that can do it without looking at the, looking at anything online. But we struggle, we struggle writing variadic templates. And Copilot just like ripped through. Like we had a 500 line file and it was just like writing templates like, and we didn't really even test it while we were running it. We then just compiled it and it just compiled. And we we're like, wow, like this is actually something that's not just like, it's completing for loops. It's completing code for us that is like, hard in our brains to reach, but fundamentally and logically it's not that complicated. The only reason why it's complicated is there's just a lot of rules, right? And from then we were just like, wow, this is, that was maybe the first LLM application for us internally, because we're not like marketers that would use uh, Jasper, where we were like, wow, this is like extremely valuable. This is not a toy anymore. So we wanted to take our technology to build maybe apps where these apps were not going to be toys. Right, they were not going to be like a demo where you post it on Twitter and then you know there's hype and then maybe like
1: a month later, no one's using it. There's a report this morning um, from Copilot where they they were estimating they keep tabs on amount of code generated by uh, Copilot that is then left in code repos and checked in, and it's something like sixty to seventy percent. That's <laughs> nuts. that's
2: nuts, but I totally believe it given given the stats we have too there's this flips in your head once you start using products like this, where in the beginning there's like there's like skepticism, like how, how valuable can it be? And suddenly now like user behavior fundamentally changes so that now when I need to write a function, I'm like documenting my code more because I think it's prompting the model better, right? So there's like this crazy thing where it's a self-fulfilling prophecy where when you get more value from it, more of your code is generated. From Copilot.
1: Just to walk through the creation process, I actually assumed that you would have grabbed your data from the pile, which is the Luther AI uh, open source uh, code information. But apparently, you scraped your own stuff. Yeah, we ended
2: up basically using a lot of open, I guess, permissively licensed code uh, in the public internet, mainly because I think also the pile is is fairly a small subset. I think maybe after we started, there was the stack that was also came to be. But for us, we had a model for ourselves even before that uh, was the point. Ah, okay. Yeah.
1: So the timing was just a little yeah, bit off. Exactly. Okay.
2: Exactly. But it's awesome work. It's, it seems like there's a good amount of work that's getting done decentrally. Yeah. Which is a little bit surprising to me because I'm like more bullish on everyone needs to get together in a room and make stuff happen. Like we're all in person in Mountain View. But yeah, no, it's pretty impressive work. Yeah, you know, Luther in general, like everything they've done, I'm pretty impressed with it.
1: Yeah, and we're going to talk about that because I was, I didn't know you were that involved in the community that early on.
2: I wasn't involved. I was more of like uh, I was watching and maybe commenting from time to time. So it's a very special yeah. community for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. That's true. That's true. My impression is a bunch of you are geniuses. You sit down together in a room and you get all your data. You train your model. Like everything's very smooth sailing. Um, what's wrong with the image?
2: Yeah. So probably a lot of it just in that. A lot of our serving infrastructure was already in place uh-huh. before then. So like, hey, we were able to knock off one of these boxes that I think a lot of other people maybe struggle with. The open source serving offerings are just, I will say not great in that in that they aren't customized to transformers and these kind of workloads where I have high latency and I want to like batch requests and I want to batch requests while keeping latency low. Mm-hmm. Right. One of the weird things about generation models is they're like auto-regressive. At least for the time being, they're auto-regressive. So the latency for a generation is a function of the amount of tokens that you actually end up generating. Like that's like the math. And you can imagine while you're generating the tokens though, unless you batch a lot, it's going to end up being the case that you're not going to get great flop utilization on the hardware. So there's like a bunch of trade offs here where if you end up using something completely off the shelf, like one of these serving thing serving frameworks, you're going to end up leaving a lot of performance on the table. But for us, we were already kind of prepared to sort of do that because of our infrastructure that we had already built up. And probably the other thing to sort of note is, early on, we were able to leverage open source models, sort of bootstrap it internally within our company, but then to ship We finally had some requirements like, hey, we want this model to have fill in the middle capabilities and a bunch of other things. And we were able to ship a model ourselves. So we were able to time it so that over the course of multiple months, different pieces were like working out properly for us. So it wasn't like, you know, we started out and we were just planning the launch materials the moment we started. There was like maybe some stuff that was already there, some stuff that we had already figured out how to train models at scale internally. So we were able to just leverage that muscle
1: very quickly. I think the one thing that you had figured out from the beginning was that it was going to be free forever. Yeah. Yeah. Copilot costs $10 a month? Copilot costs $10 a month. I would argue significantly
2: more value than $10 a month. The important thing for us, though, was we're going to continue to build more great products on top of code completion. We think code completion is maybe day one of what the future looks like. And for that, clearly we can't be a product that's like, we're $10 a month and we're adding more products. We want a user base that loves using us and will continue to stay with us as we continue to layer on more products. And I'm sure we're going to get more users from the other products that we have, but we needed some sort of a differentiator. And along the way we realized, Hey, we're pretty efficient at running these workloads. We could probably do this. You oh, know, so it right? wasn't, it was a plan to be free from the start. You just we, realized. Yeah. We realized we could probably, if we cut and optimized heavily, we could probably do this properly. Part of the reasoning here was we were confident we could probably build a pro tier and go to the enterprise. But for now, originally when we when we started, we weren't like, we're just going to go and give every all pieces of software away for free. That wasn't like sort of the goal there.
1: And since you mentioned uh, adoption and, you know, traction and all that, uh, what can you disclose about user growth, user yeah. adoption?
2: Yeah, so right now we have, we probably have over 10,000 users and thousands of daily actives and people come back day over day. Our growth is like around, you know, four to 5% day over day right now. So all of our growth right now is sort of like word of mouth. And that's fundamentally because like, the product is actually one of those products where even use copilot and use us, it's it's hard to tell the difference actually. And a lot of our users have actually churned off of Copilot. Yes, yeah, I, I swept. Yeah. yeah. Mostly
1: to support you guys, but also yeah. also to try it out.
2: Yeah, exactly. So the, the crazy thing is it wasn't like, hey, we're gonna figure out a marketing motion of like going to the people that have never heard of Copilot and we're gonna like get a bunch of users. We wanted to just get users that in our own right were like a really great product. Uh, And sort of we've spent a lot of engineering time and obviously we co-wrote a blog post with you, Sean, on this in terms of like, there's a lot of engineering work, even beyond the latency, making sure that you can get your costs down to make a product like this actually work.
1: Yeah, that's a long tail of of stuff that you referenced. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And you you said something to the order of, um, and this maybe gets into Copilot for X, uh, which is something that everybody is keen about because they they see the success of Copilot. They're like, okay, well, first of all, developer tools, there's more to do here. And second of all, let's take the Copilot idea and apply it for other disciplines. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you want to. Yeah,
0: There's kind of some key points that that you touched on. Um, How to estimate inference of scale, you know, and the latency versus quality trade-offs, building on first party. So this is, Free forever because you run your own models, right? right. If you were building on OpenAI, you wouldn't be able to offer it for free. Real-time, you know, when I first used Codium, it was literally the same speed as Copilot. I think it's a
1: little bit faster. I don't know how to quantify it. but
2: We are faster, but it's one of those things that we're not going to, like, market as that's the reason. Because it's not in and of itself a right for you to, like, I'm just going to be open with you. It's not a reason for you to, like, suddenly turn off of Copilot, Mm -hmm. where if our answers were trash, uh, (laughs) but we were faster.
0: You know what I mean? But your focus was there. We used the alpha, I think, Prem on our Discord came to us and say you guys sh- should try this out. So it was really fast even then. Prompt optimization is another big thing. And model outputs and UX, kind of how you bring them together. Which ones of these things are maybe like the one or two that new founders should really think about first? Yeah, I think, I think my feeling on this
2: is, unless you are, ext- you probably should always bootstrap on top of an existing API, right? Because like, even if you were to, the only reason why we didn't is because we knew that this product was actually buildable. Probably if we worked hard enough to train a model, we would actually be able to build a great product already. But if you're actually going out and trying to build something from scratch, unless you genuinely believe I need to fine tune on top of you know terabytes of data, a terabyte is a very large amount of data, but like tens of gigabytes of data, probably go out and build on top of an API and spend most of your time to make it so that you can hit that quality latency trade-off properly. And if I were to go out and think about like the three categories of like an LLM product, it's probably like latency, quality, and correctability. The reality is, you know, if I were to take a product like Copilot or Codium, the latency is very low. The quality, I think, is good enough for the task, but the correctability is is very easy. So correctability, what, what is correctability? Correctability means let's say the quality is not there. Like you consider the the case where the answer is wrong. How easy is it for your user to actually go and leverage parts of the generation maybe a a concrete example is a lot of things people are excited about right now are i write a comment and it generates a pr for me and that's like that's like really awesome in theory i think that's like a really cool thing and i'm sure at some point we will be able to get there that will probably require an entirely new model for what it's worth that's trained on diffs and commits and all these other things that looks at like improvements and code and stuff it's probably not going to be just trained on generic code but the problem with those those sort of i would say applications are that let's suppose something does change many files, makes large amounts of changes. First of all, it's guaranteed not going to be fast because even the idea of like reviewing the change takes a long time. So if the quality and the correctability is just not there. Let's say you had 10 file, a 10 file change and you modified like, you know, file two and four, and those two modifications were consistent, but the other eight files were not consistent, then suddenly the correctability is like really hard. It's hard to correct the output of the model. So the user interface is 100% really important, but maybe until you get the latency down or the correctability, like correctability like a lot better, it's probably not going to be shippable. And I think that's what you got to spend your time focusing on. Can you deliver a product that is actually something users want to use? And I think this is why I was talking about like demo ware. It's like very easy to hand to hand pick something that right. like works, that works for a demo. Exceedingly hard for something that has large scope like a PR to work consistently, it will take a lot of engineering work effort to make it work on small enough chunks so that a user is like, wow, this is value generative to me. Because eroding user trust or consumer trust is very easy. Like that is, it is it is much, much, it's very easy to erode user trust versus enterprise trust. Um, so just be mindful of that. And I think that's probably like the mantra that most of these companies need to operate under.
0: Have you done any analysis on what the ratio between code generated and latency Yes, so you can generate one line but you could also generate the whole block you could generate yeah. a whole class and yeah. you know the more you generate the the more time it takes like what's the sweet spot that, yeah. that you found so i think there was a great study and, and i'm not sure if it's possible
2: to link it but there was a great study about copilot actually that came out and basically what they said was there were two ways that developers usually develop with a code assistant technology they're either in what's called like acceleration mode or exploration mode and Exploration mode is basically you're in the case where you don't even know what the solution space for the function is. And you just want to generate a lot of code because you don't even know what that looks like. Like it might use some API that you've never heard of. And what you're actually doing at that point is like you're writing a clean comment, just wishing and praying that, you know, the generation is long enough I've and gets you, yep. gets you, gets you far enough. Right? <laughs> Acceleration mode is basically you are doing things where you are very confident in what you're doing and effectively, Codium gives you that muscle so that you can basically stay in flow state and you're not thinking about like exactly what the APIs look like, but push comes to shove, you will figure out what the APIs look like. But actually like mentally it takes off like a load in your head where you're like, Oh wow, like I can just do this. The intent to execution is just a lot, a lot lower there. And I think effectively you want a tool that captures that a little bit. And we have heuristics in terms of capturing whether or not you're in acceleration versus exploration mode. And a good heuristic is let's say you're inside like a basic block of a piece of code. Let's say you're inside a, a block of code or an if statement, you're probably already in acceleration mode. And you would feel really bad if I started generating the else clause. Because what happens if that else clause is really wrong? That's gonna cause like mental load for you because you're the way programmers think, they only want to complete the if statement first, if that makes sense. So there are things where we are mindful of like how many lines we generate. If you use the product like Multi-line generations happen, and we are happy to do them, but we don't want to do them when we think it's going to increase load on developers, if that makes sense.
0: That makes sense. So Copilot for X, what are X's that you think are interesting for people to build in? W- didn't we see some some tweet recently about Harvey.ai, a company yeah. that, that is trying to sell
2: it's like legal assistance? That's, that's pretty impressive. Honestly, that's very impressive. So it seems like I would really love to see what the product looks like there, because there's a lot of text there. You know, looking at Bing, Bing AI, like I mean, it's it's pretty cool, but it seems like groundedness is something a lot of these products struggle with. And I assume legal, if there's one thing you want them to be, to get right, it's like the groundedness. It's I've like actually, not, yeah.
1: yeah, I've made the analogy before that law and legal language is basically just another form of programming language. You have to be that precise. Yes, Definitions must be made and you can scroll to find the definition. It's the same thing.
2: Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. But like, I guess there's a question of like comprehensiveness. So like, let's say, let's say the only way it generates a suggestion is it provides like, you know, citations to other legal docs. You don't want it to be the case that it misses things. So you somehow need the comprehensiveness. But also at the same time, you also don't want it to make conclusions that are not from the site, the things it cites. So I don't know, like that's, that's very impressive. It's clear that they've demonstrated some amount of value because they've been able to close a fairly sizable enterprise contract. It was like a firm with 3,500 lawyers, something nuts, honestly, very cool. So it's clear this is going to happen. And I think people are going to need to be clever about how they actually make it work within the constraints of whatever workload they're operating in.
1: Well, so you, you guys are so good at trading stuff. Why don't you, you try cloning it?
2: Yeah, so I think I think that's… that's uh,
1: Preview the j- just to, roadmap?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. But I'm just kidding. I think one of the things that we genuinely believe as a startup is most startups can't really even do one thing properly.
1: Mm, um, focus?
2: Yeah, yeah. Usually doing one thing is really hard. Most companies that go public have like maybe a couple big products. They don't really have like 10. So we're under no illusions that… Give the best product experience. The amount of engineering and attention to detail to build one good product is hard. So it's probably going to be a while before we even consider leaving code. Like that's going to be a big step because the amount of learning we need to do is going to be high. We need to get users, right? We've learned so much from our users already.
1: So yeah, I don't think we'd go to law anytime soon. 3,500 lawyers with Ellen and Overy uh, is, is, is apparently the, the new... Headline. That's actually really big. Yeah, yeah, i can to them. Yeah, it's funny because like it seems like these guys are moving faster than Copilot. You know, Copilot just launched, just announced Enterprise, uh, like Copilot for Teams or Copilot for Enterprise. Yeah. After like two years of testing.
2: Yeah, it does seem like the Copilot team has built a very, very good product. Um, So I don't want to like say anything, but I think it is the case that startups will be able to move faster. I feel like that is true. But hey, like GitHub has great distribution. Whatever product they do have, they will be able to sell it really well.
1: Shall we go into model numbers and infra estimates? <laughs> Our favorite topic, <laughs> <Nice>. small models. <laughs> nice. So this is um, relevant to, basically, I'm researching a lot of scaling law stuff. You have a lot of thoughts. You you host paper discussions in your team? Yeah, we we try to like read
2: papers that we think are really interesting and relevant to us. Recently, that's been, there's just a fire hose of papers. You know, someone even just curating what papers we should read internally as a company. But... Yeah, I think I think there's there's so much good content out there.
1: You should yeah. you guys should have a podcast. I mean, I told you, should, you this before. Should have a podcast? Just yeah. just put a mic near where where you guys are talking. We gotta we gotta keep developing Codium though. <laughs> no, but you're doing this discussion anyway. You yeah, might yeah. as well just
2: oh put the discussion on a podcast. I feel like some of the some of the thoughts are raw, right? Like they're not yeah. going to be as as nuanced. Like, we'll just say something completely stupid during our discussions. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's exciting. Maybe that's. It's kind of like a Justin.tv, but for mm-hmm. ML papers. Yeah. Okay, cool. I, I watched that.
1: Okay. So, Copilot is 12 billion parameters. Salesforce Code Gen is up to 16. GPT-3 is 175. GPT-4 is going to be 100 trillion billion. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, what, what we landed on with you is with Chinchilla uh, with is that we now have an idea of what compute optimal data scaling is, uh, which is about 20 times parameters. Is that intuitive to you? Like what, what did that unlock for you?
2: Yeah. I think basically what this shows is that bigger models are like more data efficient, like given the same number of tokens, a big model, like trained on the same number of tokens, a bigger model is like, is going to learn more basically. But also at the same time, the way you have to look at it is there are more flops to train a bigger model on the same number of tokens. So like, let's say I had a 10 billion parameter model and I trained it on, on one million tokens, but then I had a 20 billion parameter model at the end of it will be a better model. Like it will have better perplexity numbers, which means like the probability of like a prediction is going to be better for like the next token is going to be better. But at the end of it, you did burn twice the amount of compute on it. Right? So Chinchilla is an interesting observation, which says if you have a fixed compute budget and you want the best model that came out of it, because there's like a difference here where a model that is, that is smaller trained on the same number of tokens as fewer flops there's a sweet spot of like number of tokens and size of model i will say like people probably like are talking about it more than they should and and i'll i'll explain why but it's a useful result which is like let's say i have you know some compute budget and i want the best model it tells you what that what you should generate the problem i think here is there is a real trade-off of like you do need to run this model somewhere you need to run it on a piece of hardware so Then it comes down to how much memory does that piece of hardware have? Let's say for a fixed compute budget, you could train a 70 billion parameter model. What are you going to put that on? Yeah, maybe you could, could you put that on an 80 gig A100? It would be a stretch. You could do things like, you know, int 8, FPA to reduce the amount of memory that's on the box and do all these other things. But you have to think about that first, right? When you want to go out and train that model. The worst case is you ended up training that, that model and you cannot serve it. So actually, what you end up finding is for a lot of these code completion models, they are actually what you would consider overtrained. <laughs> so by that, I mean, like, let's look at a model like CodeGen. It's actually trained on, I believe, and, and I could be wrong by, you know, 100 billion here or there. I got some it's, data. Oh, okay. Let's look at the 3 billion parameter model. It's a 2.7. I think it's actually a 2.7 billion parameter model. It's weird because they also trained on natural language on top of code, but it's trained on hundreds of billions of tokens. If you applied that chinchilla optimization to it, you'd be like, wow, this is, this is a stupid use of compute, right? Because three, they should be going to 60, any anything more than 60. And they're like, they should have just increased the model size. But the reality is if they had like the compute optimal one might not be one that's easy to serve, Mm. right? It could just have more parameters. And for our case, our models that we train internally, they might not be the most compute optimal. In other words, we probably could have had a better model by making it larger. But the trade-off would have been latency. We know what the impact of having higher latency is. And on top of that, being able to fit properly on our hardware constraints would have also been a concern.
1: So isn't the classic stopping point when you, you see like loss kind of levels off, right? Yeah, Now you're just letting chinchilla tell you but like you should just look at loss.
2: The problem is the loss will like continue to go down. It'll just continue to go down like like in a in a way that's like not that pleasing. It's gonna take longer and longer (laughs) and it's gonna be painful. But it's like one of those things where if you look at the perplexity number difference between like let's say a model that's like 70 billion versus 10 billion. It's not massive. It's not like tens of percentage points. It's like very small, right? So the reality is here like… I mean this comes down to like IQ of like these models in some sense. Like small wins at the margins are massive wins in terms of IQ. Like it's harder to get those. And they don't look as big. But they're like massive wins in terms of reasoning. They can now do chain of thought. All these other things. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: it's And it's apparently unlocked around the 20 billion.
2: Yes. That's right.
1: Some you kind know. of magic.
2: Yeah, I think that was from the UL2 or maybe one of those land papers. Like and any thought
1: thoughts on, on why like is it?
2: I don't know. I mean, emergence we, of I, I think, intelligence. I think I think maybe one of the things is like we don't even know maybe like 5 years from now if what we're going to be running are transformers, right? But I think it's like we don't we don't 100% know that that's true. I mean, there's like a lot of maybe issues with the current version of the transformers which is like the way attention works, the attention layers work, the amount of computers quadratic in the context length, because you're like doing like an N squared operation on the attention blocks basically. And obviously, you know, one of the things that everyone wants right now is infinite context. They want to shove as much crap <laughs> as possible in here. And the current version of what a transformer looks like is maybe not ideal for that, right? You might just end up burning a lot of flops on this when there are probably more efficient ways of doing it. So I'm I'm sure in the future, there's gonna be tweaks to this. yeah. Uh, but it is interesting that we found out interesting things of like, hey, bigger is pretty much always better. There are probably ways of making smaller models significantly better through better data. That is like definitely true. Um, and I think one of the cool things that the stack showed actually was they did a like a I think they did some ablation studies where they were like, hey, what happens if we do if we do decontamination of our data? What happens if we do deduplication? What happens if we do near dedupe of our data? And how does the model get better? And they have like some compelling results that showcase data quality really matters here. But ultimately, like yeah, I think it is an interesting result that at 20 billion, there's something happening. But I also think like some of these things in the future may look materially different than what they look like right now.
0: Mm. Do you think the token limitation is actually a real architectural limitation? Like if you think about the tokens need, it's kind of like asymptotic, right? Like once you have 50,000 tokens context, like 50,000 or infinite for most use cases, it's like the same. Where do you think That number is, especially as you think about code, like some people have very large code bases. There's a lot. Have you done any work there to figure out where the sweet spot is?
2: Yeah. Look, I think what's going to really end up happening is if people come up with a clever way. And and there was some research that I believe came out of Stanford recently. I think the team from the Helm Group, I think, came out with some architecture that looks a little bit different than Transformers. And I'm sure something like this will work in the future. What I think is always going to happen is if you find a cheap way to embed context, people are going to figure out a way to to put as much as possible in. Because LLM so far have been like virtually stateless, right? So the only thing that they have beyond fine-tuning is like just shoveling everything you can inside. And there are some interesting papers like Retro. Actually, there are maybe some interesting pieces of thought, like ideas that have come out recently. Yeah, Um, let's go through them. So one of the really interesting ideas I think is Retro. It's this paper that came out of DeepMind. And the idea is actually, let's say you send out, you send out uh, a prompt, okay, send out a prompt, you compute the BERT embedding of that prompt, and then you have this massive embedding database. And by massive, I'm not talking about like gigabytes, I'm talking about terabytes, like you have, you actually have 10 times the number of tokens as what was used to train the model. So like, let's say you had a model Mm -hmm. that was trained on a trillion tokens, you have a 10 trillion uh, like embedding database and obviously Google has this because they have all content that ever existed in humanity and they have like the best data set and sort of they were able to make one of these uh, embedding databases but the idea here which is really cool is you end up taking your prompt computing the bird embedding you find out the things that were nearby so you do roughly like a semantic search or an embedding search within that and then you take those you take the documents that were from those embeddings, and you shove those in the model too, in what are called like cross chunked attention. So you like shove them in the model with it as well. Suddenly now the model is able to take in external information, which is really exciting actually, because suddenly now you're able to get dynamic context in, and the model in some sense is deciding what that context is. It's not deciding it completely in this case, because the BERT model in this case was actually frozen. It wasn't trained with the retro model as well. But the idea is you're somehow, adding or augmenting context, which I think is like quite exciting. There's probably two futures. Either context becomes really cheap. Right now it's quadratic. Maybe there's a future where it becomes linear in the in the size of the context. But the future might actually be the model itself dictates, hey, I have this context. You have this data source. Give me this. The model itself is going out into your database and like being like, I want this information. And this is kind of like what what Bing search is looking like, right? Or Bing chat is sort of looking like, where it's like the model is probably, there's probably some model that's saying, I want this information. And that is getting augmented into the context. Now the model itself knows what context it sort of has and it can sort of like build a state machine of sort of what it needs. And that's probably what the future of this looks like.
1: So you predict monster embedding database companies?
2: Probably monster embedding database companies, or yeah, the model in some sense will need to talk to these talk to these embedding databases. I'm actually not convinced that the current breed of embedding database companies are like ready for what the future sort of looks like because I think I'm just looking at their pricing, how much it costs per gigabyte, and it's prohibitive at the scale we're talking about. Like, let's say you actually did want to host a 10 terabyte embedding database. A lot of them were created, let's say two years ago, two, three years ago, where people were like, you know, embedding databases are small and they need to make the cost economics work. But maybe, yeah, there's probably going to be a big workload there. I will just say for us, we will probably just build this in-house to start with. And that's because I think the technology probably isn't there yet. And I think if the technology isn't there yet, like waiting on point solutions to come up is a lot harder um, than probably building it out. The way I, I like to think about this is probably the world looks on the LLM space looks like how the early Internet days were, where I think the value was accrued to probably like Google and Google needed to figure out all the crazy things to make their workload work. And the reason why they weren't able to outsource is is no one else was feeling the pain.
1: Mm. They're just solving their own pain points. They're just solving their own pain points. They were so far ahead of everyone else yes. and just wait for people to catch up.
2: Yes, and that's maybe different than how things like Snowflake look where the interface has been decided for what SQL looks Mm -hmm. like 50 years ago. And because of that, you can go out and build the best database. And yeah, like, Everyone's gonna be like, "This doesn't make my beer taste better," and buy your database. Basically,
1: <laughs> that's a great reference, by the way. Oh, yeah. We have some friends of the the pod that are working on embedding database. Uh, we'll try to connect you to Chroma and see. Yeah. Oh, I actually know Anton. I worked with him at Neuro. Well, well there you go. Yeah. Uh, what do you? Well, what do you think about? I mean. Well, so okay. Chrome is pivoting towards an, an embedding database. I think it's an interesting idea. I think it's an interesting
2: idea. I wonder what the early set of workloads that they will hit are and you know what the scaling requirements are. This is maybe the classic thing where like the teams are great but you need to pick a workload here that you care about the most. You could build anything. You could build anything. When you're an infrastructure company you can go in if I was selling serving infra, I could build serving for like linear regression, I could build this. But like unless you hit the right niche for the end user it's gonna be hard. So I think it, it. I'm excited to see what comes out. And if they're great, then we'll use it. Yeah.
1: I also like how you slowly equated yourself to Google there. Oh, we're, uh, not, you're just, we're not Google. You're, you're going to be the Google of AI. No, 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 no. we we're, we're, definitely, we're definitely not Google. But I was just saying in terms of like,
2: if you look at like the style of companies that came out. Yeah, you uh, know, absolutely. Or maybe we should we the, the future. Google. Yeah. yeah the I,
0: I think that's the pitch. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thanks for pitching us. <laughs> so you just mentioned the other vector embedding stores are kind of not made for the... LLM generation of compute size, what does LLM ops look like? You know, which pieces need to be drastically different? Which ones can we recycle?
2: One of the things that we've found, like in our own thing of building Codium, that's been just shows how much is missing. And this is the thing where like, I don't know how much of this you can really outsource, which is like, we needed to build eval infrastructure. That means how do you build great code eval? And there are things online, like human eval. Right, and uh, I I was telling Sean about this, the idea of human eval is really neat for code. The idea is you provide a bunch of functions with doc strings and the eval, instead of being, did you predict next token? It's like, did you generate the entire function? And does the function run correctly against a bunch of unit tests, right? And we've built more sophisticated evals to work on many languages, to work on more variety of code bases. One of the issues that ends up coming up with things like human eval is contamination, because a lot of these uh, things that train models end up training on all of GitHub. GitHub itself has human eval. So they end up training on that. And then the numbers are arbitrarily tiny. Though
1: It's going to be tiny, right?
2: But it doesn't matter if it's tiny because it'll just remember it. It'll remember that it's... It's not that it's that precise, but it will, it's like, it's basically like mixing your, your training and validation set. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But we've seen cases where like online where someone is like, we have a code model, that's like, they were like, we did this one thing and and human eval jumped a ton and we were just like, huh, did human eval get into your data set? Is that really what happened there? But we've needed to build all this eval. And what is shown is data cleaning is massive, but data cleaning looks different by workload. Like code data cleaning is different than what is a high quality piece of code is probably different than what's a high quality legal document. And then on top of that, how do you eval this? How do you also train it at scale at whatever cost you really want to get? But those are things that the end user is either going to need to solve or someone else is going to need to solve for them. And I guess maybe one of the things I'm a little bearish on is if another company comes out and solves eval properly for a bunch of different verticals, what was the company that they were selling to really doing? What were they really doing at that point if they themselves were not evaling for their own workload and all these other things? I think there are cases where, let's say for code, where we probably couldn't outsource our eval. Like we wouldn't be able to ship models internally if we didn't know how to eval. But it's clear that there's a lot of different things that people need to take. Like, hey, maybe there's an embedding piece. How large does this embedding database actually need to be? But hey, this does look very different than what classic MLOps probably did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How
0: do you compare some of these models? Like when you're thinking about model upgrading and making changes, like what does the testing piece of it internally Yeah, look for us, like?
2: Yeah, for us, it's like old school A-B testing. We built like infrastructure to be able to say ramp up users from one to 10 to 50% and slowly roll things out. It, this is all classic software. Uh, Which you do in-house. You don't, you don't buy any services. We don't buy services for that. There are good services, open source services that help You just don't need them. Uh, Yeah, I think that's just like not the most complicated thing for us, basically. Yeah, Uh, but I think in the future, maybe we'll... Obviously, we use things like Google Analytics and all this other stuff. But yeah, for things of ramping our models, finding out if they're actually better. Because the eval also doesn't tell the whole story. Because also for us, even before generating the prompt, we do a lot of work. And the only way to know that it's really good across all the languages that our users need to tell us that it's actually good. And, and they tell us by accepting completions. So,
1: so github copilot, uh, the extension does this thing where they, they like, they'll set a timer and then within like five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, they'll check in to see if the code is still there. I thought it was a pretty creative way.
2: It's a very, it's honestly a very creative way. We do do things to see like in the long term if people did accept Accept or write things that are roughly. Because they could accept
1: and then change their mind. They could accept and
2: then change their minds. So we we are mindful of of things like that. Uh, But for the most part, the most important metric is at the time did they actually did we generate value, and we want to know if that's true. And it's it's kind of it's honestly really hard to get signal unless you have like a non-trivial amount of usage. Non-trivial meaning you're getting you're doing hundreds of thousands of completions, if not millions of completions. That sounds like oh wow, like that's like a very small amount. But like it's classic. Maybe like if you look at like. When I used to be an intern at Quora, like, you know, now more than seven, eight years ago. And when I was there, I like shipped a change and then Quora had like millions of daily actives and then it looked like it was good. And then a week later, it was just like way worse. And I'm like, How is this possible? Like in a given hour, we get like hundreds of thousands of interactions, just like, no, you just need way more data. So this is like one of those things where I think having users is like genuinely very valuable to us,
1: basically. Users is all you need. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, by the way, since you brought up Quora, have you tried Poe? Any any thoughts on Poe?
2: I have not actually tried Poe. I've not actually. I tried mean, it, it
1: seems like a question answering website that's been around for twenty years or something would be Quora? very would be very good at question answering.
2: Yeah. Also, Adam, the CEO, is like incredibly brilliant. That guy is like insanely smart. So I'm sure they're going to they, do. They may crazy have accidentally
1: stuff. built the perfect like data collection company for for QA. Yeah.
2: Uh, <laughs> it takes a certain kind of person to go and like cannibalize your original company. Like the, in some I mean, it was kind pro- of stagnant for yeah. like a few yeah. years. Yeah, that's probably true. That's probably true. Yeah. So, the
1: observation is, I feel like you have a bias towards domain-specific models, whereas most research is skewed towards uh, general models, general purpose models. I don't know if there's like a, a deeper insight here that you want to go into or, or not, but like train on all the things, get all the data, and you're like, no, 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 everyone needs like it's customized per task uh, data set.
2: Yeah, I think I'm not going to say that general intelligence is not good. You want a base model that's still really good, and that's probably trained on normal text, like a lot of different content. But I think probably one thing that old school machine learning, even though I'm like the kind of person that says a lot of old school machine learning is just gonna die, is that training on a high quality data set for your workload is, is always gonna yield better results and more, more predictable results. And I think we are under no illusions that that's not the case basically.
1: And then the other observation is bandwidth and connectivity, uh, which is not something that people usually think about, but apparently is a, is a big deal. Apparently training, gradient descent is synchronous, needs high GPU coordination. These are deleted notes from Sam Altman talking about how they think about training. And I was like, oh yeah, that's an insight. And you guys have the same thing.
2: Yeah, so I guess for, for training, you're right in that it is actually nuts to think about how insane the networks are for NVIDIA's most recent hardware. It's like for the H100 boxes, you shove eight of these H100s on a machine. Between two nodes, the bandwidth is... 3,200 gigabits a second, so 400 gigabytes a second between machines. That's like nuts. When you just sit and think about it, that's like double the memory bandwidth of what a CPU has. But it's like between two machines. On top of that, within the machine, they've created this this fabric called NVLink that allows you to communicate at ultra low latency. That's even lower than PCIe. If you're familiar, that's like the communication protocol between yeah between like the CPU and the other devices or other PCIe devices and all of this is to make sure that reductions are fast, low latency and you don't need to think about it. And that's because like a lot of deep learning has sort of evolved, uh, training has evolved to be synchronous. In the OG days there was a lot of analysis in terms of how good is asynchronous training, which is like hey, I have a node, it has a current state of the model. It's going to update that itself locally and it'll like every once in a while go to another machine and update the weights. But I think like everyone has converged to synchronous and I'm not exactly sure. There's not a lot of good research on asynchronous training right now. Or maybe there is and I haven't read it. It's just that there isn't as much research because people are just like, oh, synchronous works. Uh, and the hardware is continually up-leveled to handle it.
1: Yeah. It was just un- unintuitive to me because like the whole purpose of GPUs is you could train things, a lot of things in parallel.
2: Yes, but the crazy thing is also, maybe I can I can give some dumb math here, sure. here which is that, uh, let's go with uh, GPT-3, which is like 170 billion parameters. The optimizer state, so while you're training, is 14 times the size of the model. So in this case, if it's like 170 billion parameters, it's probably, I'm not great at mental math here, but that's probably around 2.5 terabytes to just store the optimizer state. So that has got to be sharded across a lot of machines. Like that is not a single GPU. Even if you take an H100 with 80 gigs, to just shard it that much, that's like 40, at least 30 machines. So there's like something there where these things need to communicate with each other too.
1: You need to vertically scale horizontally
2: Yeah, you <laughs> got to. So, you got to somehow feel like you have this massive, the, the ideal programming paradigm is you feel like you have this massive God, computer, GPU yeah. that's like, that has no communication, you know, overhead at all, but it has like infinite computer and infinite memory bandwidth. That's
1: the open AI cluster. Um, okay. Well, uh, we want to head to the questions. So favorite AI product that you're not building. Yeah, I'm
2: friends with some of the folks at Midjourney, and I really think the Mid-Journey project is super cool, especially seeing how the team is iterating and the quality of generations it consistently gets up-leveled. I think it's like quite neat. And I think internally at, at ExaFunction, we've been trying out Mid-Journey for like random content to
1: like generate images and stuff. Does it bother you that they have like a style? Like, I don't know. It, it seems like they're hedging themselves into a particular, like you want Mid-Journey art, you go there. Yeah. It's a brand of art. Yeah, you're right. I
2: think they do have a style but it seems more predictably good for that style. Okay. So maybe that's maybe So just that's,
1: get good at a domain specific thing. Yeah. yeah. Maybe <laughs>
2: maybe I, maybe I'm just selling talking her book right now. Yeah.
1: Uh okay, uh, next question. Uh favorite AI people and communities. Yeah, so I think
2: I mentioned this before but I think obviously the OpenAI the OpenAI folks are are insane. Like we we only have respect for them. But beyond that I think Eleuther is a pretty special group, especially it's been now probably more than a year and a half since they released like GPTJ, which was like back when open source GPT-3 Curie, which was comparable. And it wasn't like a model where like it wasn't good. It was like comparable in terms of perplexity to GPT-3 Curie. And it was trained by a university student, actually. And it just showed that, you know, in the end, like I would say pedigree is great. But in, if you have people that are motivated, know how computers work, and they're willing to just get their hands dirty, you can do crazy things. And that was a crazy project. That gave me more hope in like decentral training being potentially pretty massive. But I think that was like a very cool thing where a bunch of people just got on Discord and were chatting and they were able to just turn this
1: up. Yeah, off. I did not know this until I looked in, uh, further into Luther, but it was not a
0: formal organization. Was yeah, it was it it's a company, it wasn't a startup. Yeah.
1: Bunch of guys on
2: Discord. They got a TPU <laughs> <a> TP research grant <laughs> and they somehow just wrote some code.
0: Yeah, yeah. I listened to a podcast with, with Connor, who's the person. And basically OpenAI at the time was like, we cannot release GPT because it's like too good and so bad. And he was like, he, he actually said he was sick, so he couldn't leave home for like a, a few weeks. So it was like, what else am I going to do? And ended up getting through the Google like research programs through his university. And they were like, oh, we'll give you TPUs. And he was like, Cool, and that's
2: how that's that's amazing. That's how I, I love the story; yeah. it's a great story.
0: <laughs> so, a year from now, what do you think people will be most surprised by in AI? Yeah,
2: I think the thing people will be most surprised by is I think the the models are going to get more good at spe- special tasks for sure. But even the existing models, I think people will come up with more creative ways of leveraging them to build like world class products. I think that's just like human creativity is going to go wild. It seems like ChatGPT has already kind of unleashed that. Yeah, I think I'm just excited to see what the future of these products look like. I guess law was not something I expected
1: in such a short. Well, totally yeah. expected. I, I I was actually watching a different company that I thought was going to be the winner and then Harvey just came out of nowhere. Oh wow. Okay, <laughs> okay. well, that's, um, that's awesome. But yeah, so my, my takeaway from what you're saying is like foundational models have kind of shot way too far ahead of the apps and people think, need to build apps.
2: Yes, I think people should be building apps. But I think the reality is the model is like probably at a state right now where it can do crazy enough things. Uh, and I think great apps will, will come out of this. Yeah,
1: AI thing you would pay for if someone else built it personal or work.
2: I think if, if someone else built like a proper assistant, like a proper, like fitness assistant, I would probably pay for that. Actually. I know that that sounds weird, but someone that actually tells me like, how should I end up like, you know, doing fitness today? I ended up injuring my knee from over biking. I ended up biking like 150 miles a week and I ended up just injuring my knee out of nowhere. So, um, so you need you need an app to tell you to exercise less. Exercise <laughs> less, but tell me what my training regimen is. Uh tell me what I should do to prepare for things. I know that this is like a big niche, but I think the fact that Strava is such a big group of people and like Zwift is a big group of people seems to suggest that I think a lot of people would be willing to pay for something like this. Yeah.
0: What's one thing you want everyone to take away about AI and our conversation?
2: Probably the most important thing to take away is there's probably a lot out there if people continue to tinker. I think that's probably like the biggest takeaway I've had. Uh, and it's, you know, being a pure infrastructure company, I think like uh, six to eight months ago, I think it was like very hard to watch everyone tinkering and us just, you know, yeah. building, building infrastructure. But I think there's going to be some crazy things that come out over the next year or two. Um, excited to just see what that looks like.
0: Awesome. Yeah. yeah, that's it.
2: This was
1: fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks for coming.